0: Why don't you stand with me, and as you're standing, turn to Joshua chapter five for our study this morning, and we're going to tackle this chapter together. Joshua chapter five. As we prepare for being in the Word, I'd like to share a prayer request. La la la. la. I'd like to buy a vowel. So a prayer request uh, with you. A good friend of mine, Pastor Ed Taylor, he pastors Calvary Aurora, uh, Calvary Chapel Aurora, and uh, he also serves on our board of directors. Uh, we've always had a pastor uh, that from another church serve on our board as well to give us that outside perspective as well as Board of Elders from, from our church. But uh, his son, Eddie, uh, 26 years old, went home to be with the Lord on Monday. Uh, he passed away of a, of a heart attack. He had a heart attack about three weeks ago and was in a coma and then went home to be uh, with the Lord. So I just want to pray for him, for Ed, and for Marie, and then also Eddie's wife. Her name is Rachel. Uh, they've been married two years. They've got a little son named Levi who's three months old, and, and just for that whole church that God would bless him and comfort him. And, you know, it is quite an amazing story if, if you want to uh, look online and learn more about Eddie's life. He was a really godly man, and God really used him in a powerful way. He was a state trooper uh, in great shape, uh, 26 years old, and it was his time to go home to be with the Lord. So let's lift him up to, to in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the Taylor family. Uh, Lord, we want to lift up Rachel to you this morning and I'm sure she never anticipated to, to be in the place that she's in. And God, would you comfort her and minister to her and pour out your love upon her? Thank you for little Levi, God, at three months old. Lord, would you just touch his heart, Lord? And I'm sure he has no idea what's going on, but would you minister to him? Thank you for Ed and, and Marie, God, and for, for Joshua and Caitlin. And would you minister to them and all of Calvary Aurora? We thank you for Ed's love for our church and the time that he's taken to invest in our church over the years. And we just pray encouragement and blessing upon him. And Lord, as we draw our attention to your word, we pray that you would speak to us, that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit, that we would apply these things to our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. I can only imagine what it would be like to enter into combat. You think about, okay, in just a few moments, in a few hours— I may be taking somebody else's life, or they may take my life. And I know that some of you have been in that place where you've been in combat, fighting for our country, and you know it very well, but I can only imagine what it would be like. And for the nation of Israel, there at Gilgal, they've spent their first night into the promised land, crossed over the Jordan River miraculously, God's given them these 12 stones to be a memorial, God's going to prepare them for battle. They're going to enter into combat, and God has specific instructions of what he wants to give to them first. And the real battle is not the combat. The real battle is the preparation. The real battle is their hearts. God wants their hearts. God wants their remembrance. God wants their their worship. And the same for us is that we prepare for a battle. We're in a spiritual battle. It's not with the Amorites or or the Canaanites. It's a spiritual battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And the things that we're going to learn in this chapter are things that we can continue to apply to give our hearts to the Lord, to remember His deliverance and redemption, to be a worshiper of God that surrendered to Him. And as we continue to face battles, then God will give us the victory. Here's a few quotes from some famous generals as they tried to prepare their soldiers for battle. This is Napoleon Dynamite, I mean Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> it's a great movie, isn't it? Take time to deliberate, deliberate. but when the time for action has arrived, stop thinking and go in. Another one of his quotes, the word impossible is not in my dictionary. Our great U.S. General George Patton said this, the time to take counsel of your fears is before you make an important battle decision. That's the time to listen to every fear you can imagine. When you've collected all the facts and the fears and made your decision, turn off all of your fears and go ahead. Also, George Patton said this, Success is how high you bounce when you hit bottom. So you can probably think of some great generals that have tried to prepare their troops for battle. And we find that God is the one that ultimately prepares us for those spiritual battles, but how he does it is very different from a military general. So let's discover this story. Join me in verse 1 of chapter 5. So it was when all of the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan... And all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we'd crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. So this drying up of the Jordan River, it impacted the Israelites, God's congregation, where they knew the living God was among them. But also it touched the hearts of the Amorites and the Canaanites in the opposite way, where their heart completely melted. There's no spirit that is inside of them. The Amorites were told are on the west side of the Jordan, which would be in the area of Jericho. The Canaanites are by the sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, which we know today to be the Gaza Strip. But the most important thing is they already have a defeated heart. And this came from God. It didn't come from the children of Israel. Joshua couldn't do this. Joshua couldn't make the hearts of the Canaanites and the Amorites melt. But God could through a supernatural move. Psalms 44 verse 3 says this, For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor by their own arm did they save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. God saying to the nation of Israel, you defeated these nations not because you were strong, but because I'm strong. And that's the same that's true for us, as we can enter into God's promises not because of who we are, not because of our devotional life or because we came to church on a Sunday morning in June or we prayed or we got our act together, but we can enter into God's promises because of the greater than Joshua, Jesus Christ, who's entered for us, his death and resurrection, to continue to walk in his grace and forgiveness and his empowerment. And if we're looking at things going, God, I want to inherit your promises because I've done a good job. God doesn't honor that. But if we come in and say, Lord, I'm weak and I'm trusting and you're working, I'm following you, that's the key to victory. God's ahead of them and is working. The steps of faith that God's calling you to make, and I hope that that's the case, that God has been stirring in you steps of faith is trust that God's before you doing a work. If he's put a neighbor on your heart and you're starting to, to reach out to them, guess what? Know that he has been doing a work long before you started investing in your life. If there's children that you're investing in and you're wondering what's this gonna lead to, know that God has already been working in their hearts and their lives. If some of you are like, you know what? I'm called to go overseas. I'm gonna be a missionary. Trust that God's already working in the lives of those that you're gonna go and minister to. It's a wonderful testimony to God's mighty hand. In verse two, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again, the second time. Now, I can guarantee you, church, that this is not what Joshua was expecting to hear from God. Remember, they're in enemy territory. They're camping on the other side of the Jordan. Jericho's within view. God's speaking to Joshua. Joshua's listening. Make flint knives to go defeat Jericho. No. Make flint knives for circumcision. And that is exactly what God is asking Joshua to do at this time. I think that this is probably one of Joshua and the children of Israel's greatest acts of faith. Why? Because these are grown men who are circumcised without any anesthetic, with flint knives, and they would be in no position to fight any battles for several days. Because they're vulnerable, they're in pain, and they're having to heal. Genesis 34 gives us an interesting commentary on this because a gal named Dinah, tragic story, she wandered to go see what things were like among the other nations. And turns out she was raped. The guy that raped her wants to marry her. The brothers cook up this evil scheme. They're like, okay, you can marry our sister, but you've got to be circumcised. So all the men of the city get circumcised, and they wait. The scripture tells us Genesis thirty four for three days till the pain was at its peak, was most severe. And they go in and they kill all of the men in revenge. So we know that the whole multitude of Israel, all of the warriors, all of the men, they would be hurting. And all of you guys are saying yes and amen, right? Ouch! Flint knives, no, thank you. But yet, Joshua is willing to act in. Obedience and hear the Lord's plan. Notice what Joshua does in verse three. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins. Gross. That's all I got to say about that. Right? So many guys have got to get circumcised that they just call the place the hill of foreskins. And yes, we go verse by verse here at Rocky Mountain Calvary. This is this is proof right here. This would be an easy verse to skip. One of the characteristics that I admire about Joshua is his complete and immediate obedience. If he steps back and thinks about this with his own understanding, with the logic of a military strategy saying, there's no way we're going to do circumcision right now. They're going to come in and just wipe us out like that. But he doesn't do that. He trusts God and he obeys God. And God's going to ask us to do things that don't make sense to us, to not lean upon our own understanding. And it's important to have that complete and immediate obedience in following God. It would have been very difficult for Joshua to go to the men of Israel and say, God has spoken to me. Y'all need to get circumcised. And they're like, well, we're glad he spoke to you, but he hasn't spoken to me, right? So this would be a challenging thing for Joshua to lead out into. We find the reason why they needed to be circumcised in verse 4 and 5. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. For all the people who had come out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way, as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. The men born in Egypt, they were circumcised. But the ones that were born in the wilderness had never been circumcised. Now, for some of you at this point, you've got a great question. You're saying, why circumcision? Why does it really matter that these men had to be circumcised? In Genesis 17, you may want to write it down, and I'll read it to you. God speaks to Abraham, and he says, this is what I want you to do in regards to circumcision. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout all their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male in your generation. He who is born in your house or bought with money for any of the foreigner who is not your descendants. And the text goes on to share that if a man wasn't circumcised, he couldn't be part of the congregation of Israel. And God says that this was going to be a sign of his covenant, that these were his people. Now, in the new covenant, we don't see having to go back under this. There's freedom to not be circumcised or to be circumcised, whatever you choose to do with your your male sons. But for the children of Israel, there wasn't that option. This was the sign of their covenant and their commitment with the Lord. Was circumcision important to God? Is this something that God was like, you know, you can kind of take it or leave it if you want to be circumcised? Well, Exodus 4 gives us a fascinating view on this because Moses has been called by God. God says, I want you to leave the wilderness and go back to Egypt. You remember the burning bush incident that God spoke to Moses with. So Moses says, okay, he's hesitant, but he he says, okay, I need someone to speak for me because I, 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 I stutter. So Aaron comes, his brother, to be his spokesman. The journey is now taking place back to Egypt. And in Exodus 4, I read to you an obscure verse. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. God's like, bam, I'm going to kill you. So if you're reading Exodus for the first time, you're like, I don't get this. God sends him to Egypt. And then on the way, God tries to kill him. Well, What's going on? Zipporah knows Moses' wife. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, surely you're a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. God let Moses go. Then she said, you're a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Moses was neglecting to circumcise his son, and God was so passionate about it that he tries to kill Moses. And when Zipporah circumcises the boy, then God lets up on Moses. That's how important it is to the Lord. Well, what's the spiritual understanding of this? Is there just a an outward sign of the covenant? What's taking place? God always intended for circumcision to represent a heart that had been surrendered to God. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that you may live. And Romans 2 says something similar. It says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is from men, but not from God. So God always wanted the heart. He says true circumcision is a heart that has been touched by the Spirit of God. So the circumcision really gives us a lot of spiritual understanding. First is, there's a part of our heart that has to be dealt with. That's gotta be cut out. That's what God is saying. Jeremiah 17 verse nine says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who could know it. And God wants our heart. That's what he intended all along. He says, love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and before they could enter into the battle their hearts had to be separated from God I believe God's wanting to raise up a generation of warriors that we're living in times where Christians need to stand with the love and determination of Jesus Christ and I think you're being stirred to enter into that battle but before we can enter into the battles that God has for us our hearts have got to belong to him otherwise we're just going to be a casualty And the Lord's not just looking for warriors. He's looking for worshipers first. He's looking for those that will surrender to him. And there's a part of your heart and a part of my heart this morning that God wants. And you know what it is. Maybe it's anger, it's bitterness, it's lust, it's covetousness, it's unforgiveness. And the Lord's saying, soften your heart let me deal with it. And that's an understanding that we have that comes from circumcision. Also, it shows us that God's not just impressed with outward ritual, without any inward conviction. Because Israel went on to circumcise their boys, but it meant nothing to them in their relationship with God. It's like someone getting baptized that doesn't know Christ. They just got wet in a horse trough here at Rocky Mountain Calvary. A lot better places to take a bath, right? A lot of better places to, to get wet. So God didn't want them just to go through this outward ritual without their heart being surrendered before the Lord. Now in verse 6, there's a review. There's a a reminder of the fallen generation in the wilderness. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness to all the people who were in men of war, who had come out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. At this point, if you're taking notes, you might want to write down Numbers 13 and 14. Because this generation didn't enter into the land because they came to the promised land, 12 spies went in, 10 came back with a report of unbelief based on their sight. We're just grasshoppers compared to these guys. There's no way we can have this victory. Their unbelief resulted in disobedience. But Joshua and Caleb, they saw it in faith. They were ready ready to enter into the land. They're the only two that God allows into the land. And at this point, as the men are being circumcised, God reminds this new generation and saying, you know what, there was a past generation that didn't enter into the land. And you're about ready to face some battles, but you can be prepared in faith. This is very significant for us, for Rocky Mountain Calvary, because Hebrews 3 and 4, go ahead and write those down as well. Hebrews 3 and 4, God says, I want to take this generation that died in the wilderness, 40 years of just having your parents pass away, your aunt and uncle pass away, another one bites the dust, boom, boom, right? Right? They got good at a lot of funerals. And I'm sure that they were in this place of wondering and saying, are we going to walk in unbelief as well? And God warns us in Hebrews 4 verse 11, he says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And if you take the time to read Hebrews 3 and 4, it's a warning about the generation that died in the wilderness. Do you believe that you're destined to the failures of your parents and the failures of your grandparents? Because the world tells you you are. If your parents were a jerk, you're going to be a jerk. If your dad was a jerk, well, guess what? You're a jerk. If your mom was a rageaholic, guess what? You're going to be a rageaholic. That's just your your lot in life. And if you're Irish, then you can get away with anything you want, right? Because it's like, oh, I'm just Irish, right? But what does God say? God says that we're a new creation in Christ Jesus, that this generation gets to rise above the failures of their parents. This generation that died in the wilderness, they were God's children. They never stopped being God's children. They just didn't enter into the things that God had for them. And so for us, we can learn from the failures and the successes of our parents, rise upon their shoulders, even if they were bad examples, and we're not destined to make those same mistakes. Isn't that encouraging? Your new creation in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they'd not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they'd finished circumcising all of the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. So for the next several days, they just had to sit around and allow the healing process to take place. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal is very significant because it's the place of memorial, the 12 memorial stones, of remembering that God had supernaturally dried up the Jordan River. But it's also the place where God says, I've rolled away your shame. Why was Egypt a place of shame? Because they were slaves. And I can't imagine something that's more degrading to humanity where you have no free will, you have no choice, you're a slave, you're going to do whatever you're told to do, you're going to be treated however they want to treat you. And generations and generations of Israelites were slaves. And God says, today in Gilgal, I have rolled away your, your shame. You're no longer slaves. You are in the promised land and I'm going to bless you. There's a correlation to our lives as well because before we receive Christ our Savior, we were slaves to sin. Our Pharaoh, our taskmaster, was our sinful nature. Jesus died on the cross and rose again for us. As we believed in faith, then we were forgiven and set free, delivered out of bondage. But Jesus also rolls away our shame. I love talking to people and hearing, what, what's God's story in your life? And sometimes they tell me what their life was like before Christ. And it's like, I can't even imagine that like, I've known you for a long time, and you're a Jesus freak. You're like all about Jesus, and you got this neat godly character, and you used to be like that. Wow, that's crazy. God has rolled away your shame. My parents weren't Christians when they grew up, but I knew them as Christians. They got saved before I was was born, and when I got older. They told me what their life was like before Christ. And I'm like, man, I can't even picture that, you know? I can't even put that in the same frame of reference because God had transformed them and had rolled away their shame. Maybe you can look back at your life before Christ and you go, wow, I remember where I came from, but that was so long ago. I'm not even the same person. God's changed me and transformed me. Maybe you're just beginning in your relationship with Christ and you're having trouble and difficulty. You think about brand new babies, right? It's not a real pretty process. And I'll leave it at that. But sometimes being new in the Lord, you're going to have some mistakes, aren't you? And just take hope. God's going to continue to work in your character. And there's going to be a point where someone's going to come up to you and they're going to like, I can't even imagine that this is what your life used to be. Isn't God good that he rolls away our shame? That he puts that behind us. In verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at the twilight on the plains of Jericho. It's important to know that for the nation of Israel, a new day would start as the sun was setting. So twilight, when the sun is setting on the 14th day, they would celebrate Passover, the 14th day of the first month. It's still this way in Israel. When the sun goes down on Friday, that starts Sabbath. Sabbath continues till the sun goes down on, on Saturday. The 14th day, God had set this day aside to celebrate Passover. And remember, Passover was when they got delivered out of Egypt. This was the last plague that was put upon Pharaoh. And Pharaoh finally softened his heart and let the children of Israel go. So on every year, the first month, the 14th day, they were to take a lamb and celebrate Passover. There were specific instructions that God gave with Passover. And I read this and I go, God, you're awesome. And this causes me to worship the Lord this morning. Because God could have picked any day, any time for them to come into the promised land. But we know from last week's study, they came in on what day? The 10th day, which was the day that the lamb was identified. And now the 14th day, here they are. And instead of out fighting battles, which would be the tendency, is, okay, let's go take on Jericho. God says, hold on. I want to make sure that I have your heart. It's make sure you're in covenant with me. And he says, I want you to remember my past faithfulness. So we're going to take Passover together. And this generation gathers and they celebrate the first Passover in the promised land. And remember, they were born in the wilderness, So they weren't there in Egypt to experience the first Passover. And the lesson that's being imprinted on their heart is, God, you were faithful in the past. You're going to be faithful in the future. We're headed into these battles, and we know that you're going to show yourself strong, that you're going to be faithful to your word. And this is what we need to do as well. The greatest war, the real battle that takes place, is our hearts, and our hearts being in a place of confidence in God. And as we go through difficult times, and we will... Maybe you had just a terrible week. Some of you are saying, I I wish that I only had a terrible week. I've had a terrible decade, you know? And we can get to that place where our knees are weak and our heart's discouraged and we have to stop and go, no. You were faithful at the cross where you delivered me from death. I know that you're gonna continue to be faithful and you'll deliver me from anything that comes in the future. And this was an important process for the children of Israel. And as they were in battle, I wonder if they're reflecting back to the Passover and going, God, you're faithful. You're gonna see me through. From God's perspective, he writes about us, each of us as being glorified if you're in Christ. He's not going, oh, I hope you make it try harder. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Maybe you'll make it to heaven. He says, no, you're glorified from God's perspective. You're a finished work. I feel like a piece of work. But from God's perspective, he's saying, Eric, you're going to make it because I'm going to finish that good work that I've started in you. And I know some of you have lost loved ones and your heart's grieving. I know some of you are unemployed and out of work. I know some are going through tremendous relational difficulties, and your heart's broken this morning. I know for some of us, we've got battles to fight that we can't even comprehend. So what do we do? We focus on God's past faithfulness. Not just to remember the good old days, but to look forward to know that he'll be faithful in the future. Do you know that they were to celebrate Passover with their shoes on? Why? Because the first Passover was going to lead to their deliverance. God's saying, I want you to be in a place where you're going to walk in the deliverance that I've provided. And when we take communion and we remember God's faithfulness in our lives, there's also this future aspect that, God, you're going to be faithful in the future. I'm going to remember this until you come. And to take communion with our spiritual shoes on, in a sense, where I'm ready to walk in confidence in the Lord. In verse 11, and they ate the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they'd eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Forty years in the wilderness, God provided manna from heaven, this bread from heaven, except for on sabbath you were to collect extra fruit on friday so that you weren't working on saturday so god didn't provide the manna from heaven on the sabbath and i'm sure initially they were really thankful for the bread from heaven but after 40 years we know from scripture numbers 11 that they got pretty sick of the manna they're like oh manna here we go manna you again here it is you know And to the point where they cry out to God, and they're like, God, I'd really like a bacon cheeseburger. Probably not that, because that's not kosher. But (laughs) they were craving meat. Numbers 11. I mean, can you blame them? Hey, more manna, more manna. I just want some meat. So God, in his grace, sends a bunch of quail. And they gather all the quail, keep gathering all the quail, gathering the quail. And they craved the meat. They lusted for the meat so bad that they just started to eat it without cooking it. And the flesh just starts coming out of their teeth. And God sent a plague upon them because of their lust. So you can imagine what verse 12 tasted like, right? They're in the promised land, and this is the first time to have produce from the land. And again, God is doing this at just the right time. He brings them into the land at the time of harvest, For some, this is the first time they've ever had an orange. I don't think anybody came out to the children of Israel in the wilderness and said, fresh oranges for you, five dollars, you know. They lived off the manna. They lived off of what God provided. And and now they're eating the produce, the fresh fruits and, and vegetables, and the manna ceases. I went to a school ministry in southern Oregon at the church I grew up at. And the way that it worked was the church bought a a house that was close to the church property. It was a four-bedroom house and there was 25 guys in our school ministry, two restrooms. So 25 guys, four bedrooms, in bunks. And it was the budget school ministry, which I was thankful for. Tuition was reasonable. So what you got every day for a year was oatmeal for breakfast. And it wasn't the kind of oatmeal that your mom makes. It's a big pot of oatmeal that's just nasty. And then at the bottom of the pot, you didn't want the bottom of the pot. There was death in the pot, you know. <laughs> and then every day, and I'm not exaggerating, every day for lunch was beans and rice. Pinto beans and rice and some chips that you could, you know, on the top. And we were blessed with some really great dinners. But I got to tell you, when that school ministry was over, one is the smells were a lot better, because you can imagine beans and rice every day for 25 guys or young guys. We'll just leave it at that. But I didn't have oatmeal for like five years after that. And if you eat the same thing every day over and over, it does try you. And the joy of this moment where they no longer need manna, and now God's brought them into the produce of the land. We end the chapter this morning with now God focusing upon Joshua. God's prepared the people, but he wants to prepare his leader, Joshua. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. So Joshua's inspecting Jericho, looking at the walls, no doubt trying to think of a plan of how they were going to win this battle. And in the midst of this, he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or our adversaries? Maybe you've had that moment where you need a midnight snack, two in the morning snack, or you got to get up and use the restroom. And you're getting back to bed, you're walking down the hall, and then all of a sudden, someone's standing right in front of you. And in that moment, you're like, you know, freaked out. And then you realize, oh, it's one of my kids. It's somebody from my family. I don't need to be freaked out. Joshua had no an- anticipation of seeing This person, I mean, a very frightful moment for Joshua, this man standing opposite, he's the swords drawn, He's, he's ready to go. And the question that Joshua has is, friend or foe, are you for us or are you against us? The response is, so he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant?" Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. The first question that comes to mind is, Who is this man? What's the identity of this man? Because he calls himself the commander of the Lord's army. He also receives worship from Joshua and demands worship from Joshua. Who can receive worship and demand worship only God. In the book of Revelation, we find John the Apostle having this vision of heaven and also having interaction with angels. He gets a little confused and starts trying to worship an angel. What does the angel do? Get up, get up, please, no. The angel can't accept the worship that belongs to God, can't touch God's glory. If this is an angel, the angel's not going to accept worship, but the this particular man does, accepts worship. But it also says, I want you to take off your sandal because the place that you're standing is holy. Does that ring a bell? When Moses had the burning bush experience with God's presence, what did God say? Right where you're at right now, this is holy. This is my presence. You, You need to take your shoes off in respect and understanding that my presence is a sacred place. So I suggest to you that this is None other than Jesus Christ. It's called a Christophany is the theological term of Christ in the Old Testament where Christ steps onto the pages of the Old Testament and Joshua has an encounter with Jesus and Jesus initiates it. And Jesus comes to Joshua and Joshua needs to know his place and know who the commander is as he goes in to face these battles. And the question... That Joshua has is, are you for us, against us? And God says, no. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. What's being inspre- expressed in that? God's on his own team. God's sovereign. He does things for his own namesake. He does what he pleases. And a lot of times we go, God, are you on my team? And that's not the right question. The question is, is Joshua on God's team? This morning, the real question for me is, am I surrendered to God? And we do read in Romans 8 that God is for us. And sometimes we sing that song that God is for us and who could be against us. But we don't want to wrongly interpret that and wrongly apply that. And I think sometimes in our culture, we get a misstep and we think, well, God is for us in that He's on my team and I'm in control and He does what I want. And that couldn't be further from the truth. He's the Lord, I'm the servant. And he's for us in the sense that he died on the cross for us and has given us unconditional love. And he's got a plan of his will for his glory. And that's when we're blessed when we live for his glory. But that is established in Joshua that God's the commander, that he's the one that's sovereign in control. Now notice Joshua's response. He assumes his proper place. He fell on his face on the earth. When we encounter Jesus Christ and we really see him and behold him, we can't help but fall on our face before him. And some of you are saying, well, why is that important? You know, God knows my heart. He sees my heart. My heart's surrendered to him. I'm worshiping him. So why do I want to get on my face before God? Because there's something very special of allowing your body to come in line with the position of your heart. And this is something that Joshua is doing privately before the Lord. He's encountering the Lord. Because who are you going to get on your face before on a human level? Guys, when you proposed, maybe you took one knee or got down on two knees, but you didn't get on your face and go, I'm a poor, wretched soul. Please marry me, right? (laughs) It's only God that we're going to get on our face before. And hear this we have to bow before the battle. We want to rush into the battle. We want to see great victories. We want to see the walls of Jericho fall. If we want to see the walls of Jericho fall, we've got to bow. And not just once, but continually, regularly, because the battle doesn't stop. So we start the day on our knees. We end the day on our face before God. We understand who He is, His holiness, His majesty, His grace, and His mercy. We get on our face before the Lord, and Joshua just begins to worship. We don't know what he said. We don't know if he sang We don't know what he expressed. Maybe it was something like this. God, I know that you're the creator. Joshua would have Genesis 1-1 of God speaking all things into existence. Joshua would have the testimony of Moses, of the character of God, that God's long-suffering and gracious and merciful. So maybe Joshua's, God, you're the creator. You're gracious. You're merciful. You're long-suffering. You're the God of truth. But he just begins to worship the Lord. And out of this worship comes the question of a worshiper. See, worship is expressing who God is, but then it's also surrender. He says, what does my Lord say to his servant? Saying, I'm the servant, you're the Lord, so you tell me what to do. And the success of the book of Joshua lies here in verse 14. When we go, okay, I'm not going to be in control. Because read ahead. God's going to ask Joshua to do some things that just don't make any sense. And that's already happened in Joshua 5, with the circumcision. So are we willing to walk by faith and not lean upon our own understanding? It comes to this place of surrender and saying, you're the Lord. And in verse 15, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take the sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Why does God instruct this? Because God wants Joshua to know that there's something special about God's presence. And that's the same for us as we enter in together into worship, as we set other distractions aside, I'm entering to the presence of God. You know, when we take time to be in God's word and to pray, realize, man, there, there's something special about being in God's presence. I've known worship leaders over the years, a couple of them that felt led to always lead worship barefoot with no shoes, no, no sandals, because it's something for them to register, hey, this is a special time where I'm in the presence of God, and God's presence is holy. And everybody else is like, your toes are gross, but they don't care, you know? There's things for us to apply in this chapter, and the first is deal with your heart. Deal with your heart. This week, I just had some unique circumstances that I knew God was saying, you know what? Eric, I want to deal with your heart. You may be going things through in your life and God is sovereign, and He is in control, and there's no coincidences, and He's going, you know what? I want your attention. I want your heart. God's really not concerned with your church attendance, first and foremost. He's not just saying, come to church, check off a box, go through the outward ritual. He wants your heart. That's what He longs for. So how do you deal with your heart? I think it starts with saying, God... Show me the state of my heart. Sometimes we can't even see the state and the condition of our heart. And as the Lord begins to reveal things, that we respond in confession, in brokenness, and repentance. Psalms 51 says that God doesn't delight in sacrifice. He delights in a broken and contrite spirit. What we can give to God is saying, I'm softening my heart before you. Scripture tells us to break up the fallow ground of our hearts you do any kind of gardening, you know the ground has to be prepared. And as our heart become hard? Has it become calloused? The natural course of my heart is for it to become hard. Unless I'm willing to confess, I'm willing to be broken before the Lord. Is it anger? Is it bitterness? Is it lust? Is it covetousness? You know. But before we can enter into the battles that God has for us, we have to deal with our heart. And you may be saying, you know what? I desperately want to deal with my heart and I've been trying and I just can't seem to get any victory is understand the way that our heart is dealt with is through the spirit. That's what Romans 2 told us. A heart is marked by God through the spirit. So it's the spirit of God speaking to you saying, you know what? Don't say that. I see that thought that you're having. Don't let it continue. It's going to lead to action. See that person right there? You need to go talk to him. And it's a heart that walks with the spirit as the spirit of God is leading. The spirit's speaking if we're willing to listen and walk in step with the spirit. But also our heart is dealt with through the word. You're saying, I want change, but how? How do I change? Through the spirit and through the word. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You get into the word of God, and the word of God will be an exacting surgical knife that will cut us open. And we'll be reading the word, and there'll be those times of, ouch, ouch God, that hurts. But thank you, because I need it. My heart needs that. My heart's in in the wrong place. That's why we study the word on Sunday mornings, because we believe it's powerful, that it's sharper than the two-edged sword that the best thing that we can do with time during our week is to get into God's word and say, God, you deal with my heart through your word. And that's how a heart is touched and marked by God. Also, we want to celebrate God's past redemption and be confident of his faithfulness in the future. Look at the cross and go, God, I don't understand all the circumstances in my life, but I know you're faithful. I know that you're going to continue to be faithful. That's the way we celebrate Passover. And then most importantly, is encounter Jesus, encounter Jesus. Jesus here initiates the encounter with Joshua and he comes to him with a sword. He says, all right, Joshua, it's time for some brokenness. It's time for you to understand who's in control here. And Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, he's in our midst. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That means he's with you. He's with us right here. If we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. And for us to be in his presence, to encounter him and be a worshiper, to realize his holiness, his grace, his mercy, his sacrifice, and ask that question that Joshua asked. Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm the servant, you're the Lord. I wanna follow your lead and bowing down before him. So let's do just that. Let's stand and pray together.